Thank you for tuning in to Tech United on Tap, brought to you by Tech United New Jersey. You're listening to a special episode from our Propelify 2020 series, and you can find more episodes like this on our website at techunited.co. That's techunited.co. This talk debuted at the fifth annual Propelify Innovation Festival in October 2020, where our mantra is to propel ideas into action. Enjoy it, and be sure to subscribe to be notified when new episodes go live. This next session with Dele Atanda is going to really blow your mind on AI and smart cities and uh, the impact of privacy. So let me introduce our guest, Dele Atanda. He's the CEO of MetaMe. It's the world's first self-sovereign AI and clean data marketplace. And uh, the Internet Foundation, an NGO dedicated to the ethical technology and digital, excuse me, dedicated to ethical technology and digital human rights. He's an acclaimed visionary. He's led innovations from Fortune 100s that have become gold standards for digital engagement within their sectors. He's an avid advocate, a frequent speaker on the potential of decentralized technologies to advance humanity while positively and dramatically transforming society. That's basically the theme of the week. Dele, thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Great to be here. So first of all, you know, we're Tech United New Jersey. Where are you actually geographically joining us from today? In New Jersey, great. The garden, the beautiful garden state. So I'm in Tenafly, New Jersey. Awesome. Jersey zone. So let's jump right in. How does AI make our lives better or worse? And how does it have an impact on the on smart cities? Okay. Um, so, I mean, you know, there's a big promise of AI that it will give us much more intelligent services, hyper personalization, much, uh, you know, great rapid results very quickly, um, much greater efficiency, much, much more, much better utilization of resources generally. And, you know, you could argue as to how well it's delivering against that uh, vision and promise. Um, and that's one that's been in, in development for, for a couple of decades now. But of course, we've seen that there's a dark side to AI, you know, just at a surface level, even, you know, there's, there's one of the big challenges is, you know, biases, um, you know, amplification of current social biases, um, automating things in a manner that can make our current um, failings as a species even more um, amplified. Um, You can look at, you know, even down to things like industrialization. And if you have an AI that's optimized to industrialize more, then we're going to look at more ecological challenges. Um, If the biases of AI are not addressed, we're going to look at more social injustice. Um, there's, um, you know, blind spots of, you know, for example, when it comes to, it goes beyond bias, but even blindness. So for example, race, for example, is a big thing with facial recognition AI, but even language in terms of AI, even in terms of sense, you know, understanding and all of these things. So these are the real dangers that it represents. I want you, can you share some concrete examples? I've heard people talk about race as a significant issue. Can you, you know, for people who, uh, maybe are less involved in this industry. Any concrete examples where if you're someone who looks like me, a lot of these things work for you. And if you're someone who looks like you, they may not. Yeah. So um, there are, there are uh, even com- computer vision or machine vision um, as a specific use case in terms of AI and some of its failings. 
So you will have examples with self-driving cars that um, don't recognize people of color as people. So they won't know how to interact with them. And this will come down to how the AI is trained. So basically all AI is really, they're, they're processing engines, but they're trained with data sets. So if you feed it more of a particular type of data set, it's going to become better at observing patterns within those data sets. So if you feed it with a lot of Caucasian faces, it's going to understand different types of faces. But if it's not fed with faces of African-Americans or people of color, then it won't be able to make accurate predictions on those. So you see that, and we've seen that, for example, where um, AIs have been used by police forces to incorrectly arrest people based on an AI suggesting, looking at a lineup of pictures and suggesting that a particular person is the person, the subject in question. And that would be a result of it not having sufficiently been well-trained on the differences on darker skin faces on light than lighter ones, for example. So that's one type of example. Um, you know, uh, there, when it comes to, um, even in terms of if you look at if you train an AI to look at society and you have a situation where you know you know there's a higher degree of incarceration within the African-American community for example higher degree of debt all things owing to big social infrastructural issues but if you train an AI on that data and you don't give it guidance around how to use that data then it's going to accept that that is the social norm and amplify that in its decision-making processes and make decisions based off of that. So if it comes, and we've seen this like with AI systems that are allocating parole time, for example, where greater parole times are allocated to people of color than to Caucasian people in that regards, because that's what it understands to be normalcy. So it's really important when we look at AI that we start from a position of ethics and we start from a position of defining what the purpose of the AI should be and what we want it to achieve. Because ultimately, AIs, even when you look at deep learning and machine learning, where the machine is supposedly teaching itself, it does all start with algorithmic frameworks, which we define. So how much of this is a tech problem and how much of this is a human or societal problem? That's the ch challenge now. They're, they're really starting to become inseparable. They're, I think one of the big problems with technology, with the previous technolo technological paradigm has been that technology is just basically designed based on what engineers think is possible, what engineers want to do, and what, what can be done. But what is really important is that it is led by what we want as a society. So I always, I, I, I call this sort of like the, the, the social tech stack. And it really, it's got to start with ethics. And then underneath that, you then have, you, you have law. And then under that, you have economics. And then tech is actually the last piece because tech should be really enforcing what you've defined as what is right and wrong based on ethics, what is allowable based on law, what is incentivized based on economics, and then what is possible using technology to sort of codify that whole stack. So, you know, if there were many more black engineers, software engineers, 
would that, do you believe that would dramatically change the biases going into these solutions or is it something much, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously massively oversimplifying something that's a much more complex problem, but I'm trying to highlight, you know, the societal connection to what happens to that technology. And I'm wondering if, is, is that a massive input? Is that a big problem that we face? Yeah, so I think the problem's threefold in that regard. So I think on one, on one, one dimension is that, that you need black engineers as well as you need inclusive engineers. And this really comes down to two things, which is one is bias. And so there are unconscious biases that we all have. And that if you don't have black engineers in the room um, who are codifying it, you're not, then what the result of that is that you have blind spots. And so to obviate those blind spots, you need an inclusive, diverse audience so that you eliminate those blind spots as best as possible. And that's, that's on the engineering dimension. But above that, to my stack again, you need ethicists. You need you know, people who are charged with looking at the more philosophical implications of the technology generally. And that, again, needs to be an inclusive group that is fully representative of society so you avoid biases and blind spots. But it's important that that group is looking at the, the technology more from the horizon of what role do we want technology to play in society rather than simply what technology can do. The engineers are more um, interested in terms of what technology can do. And then the third layer is the data. And that is really about having data that is representative not only of society in an inclusive manner, and this is where it gets really tricky, but and that's why it has to be led by the ethicists and the moralists, because you need to feed data that is aligned with what you're trying to achieve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I you know, I'm going to put you on the spot here a little bit. I think I saw you have an Apple Watch on. Have you ever asked Siri for some response? gotten a, or some question gotten a response and thought you know this really missed the mark like culturally they there was some implicit bias here there was something that you know I, I, that that just wasn't appropriate for me for this response because it was built it was a different end game end game in mind um i mean to be frank you know i i i don't i, I don't really engage with siri very much i mean it's always interrupting my conversations and jumping in to be honest with you um yeah. but i just i i just feel i'm i'm not it's not at a point like that that said um i have been playing recently with open ai's gpt3 and that is a very interesting area it's very very um very creative very capable much more capable than what's out from Siri or, or, or Google or Alexa at that. And, and also what's interesting about it is it's not at the point where its purpose is commerce. Its purpose is more about information and knowledge. So in that sense, it's more interesting. And that has thrown, I haven't, I haven't come across an, um, it giving me culturally inappropriate responses, in fact, but I have found it giving cultural insights. That said, you know, if you want examples of, you know, culturally inappropriate responses from AI, the famous one is the Microsoft um, Tray. I think their AI was, and, you know, they released it to learn, you know, using machine learning and deep learning from just trawling the internet. And within, I think it was five days or so, it was like, um, you know, espousing Nazism and all sort of vile sort of you know real scourge of the internet in terms of its conditioning 
And that comes back to the data, right? Because, you know, in many ways, phenomenal as the internet is, on the other, you know, the skeptical or sitting, I once heard it described as like the world's vomit. <laughs> and in many ways, it kind of does have, you know, it brings all of the worst of humanity to bear. So if you just simply unleash an AI on that, then, you know, you're going to get pretty twisted results. You, you certainly can. I mean, the, the, um, the things that tend to be most interesting can also get dark. I'm sorry, the most entertaining can get dark very quickly, whereas knowledge can be kind of dull. And, and I think sometimes people forget that the internet really is a, a media channel that, you know, has a capitalistic uh, model generally that makes it work. But, you know, l let's talk about smart cities and I want to get into some, the, the issue of privacy for a moment, mm -hmm. but, you know, how do you think 5G as it becomes more widely available changes any of this, if at all? Well, I mean, you know, I think um, it changes things dramatically on a lot of dimensions. Um, you know, I think Jeff Bezos once said, you know, they said to him that, you know, has the, has the internet not already bolted? And he said, like, it's day one and the alarm clock hasn't even gone off yet. And I think, you know, quite often when you get into the discussion about data and privacy, people often say the genie's out of the bottle, the data is already out there. But that's not true. We're stuck at such early days in this data journey. And 5G plays a really important role because the capability to move large volumes of data around very rapidly is going to change everything. It means that the, that the, the, the AI services will be able to be light um, because they won't have to carry a lot of of data around with them you know i mean you look at something like robotics for example there was a massive transformation in robotic development in the in the early 2000s and the late 90s because of the arrival of the internet because prior to that all the robotic information had to be in the robot but once you were able to have a wireless connection with the robot then suddenly the robot can be very light and it can just really be focused on the learning and the processing and the actual intelligence can be in the cloud. So 5G brings, that means we'll be able to get to a very small, almost nano sized kind of um, AI capabilities. Something like autonomous cars is a great example of where you need to have a strong capability in the vehicle that's with intermittent connections where you have large spurts of data up and down. So 5G will change that dramatically. And then the amount of data that is generated as a result of that, the amount of data that is in the system will grow hugely as a result of 5G. Do you, do you think this is a societal benefit? One of the things that we're working on with Verizon actually is enabling retailers in, in what is currently the 5G connected area in New Jersey, which is in Hoboken, to help them recover from the pandemic. And we're layering on top of the connectivity a whole variety of services. We're really excited about it, but there's a lot of, ch and, and I see 5G as an inevitability as someone focused around New Jersey. I'd like to see New Jersey take a lead position in deploying 5G around the state so that we can get ahead of some of these opportunities. But so my view is I think it's, it has significant societal benefit, but I think you come at this from a different, you know, different point of view. I'm wondering if you see this as a net positive or do you think it unleashes a lot of significant concerns? 
Um, you know, technology, I think, generally tends to be neutral. Um, I, 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 I'm a technologist and I love technology. It's the humans. We're the problem. It is the humans. That, that really ultimately is ultimately what it comes down to. I, I, I'm not afraid of the robots. I'm not afraid of AI. I'm afraid of the people who own the robots and the people who task the robots with achieving certain goals. So I think it, I do believe that technology ultimately is for the betterment of mankind. And that's the role technology should serve. And I definitely think that smart cities could be incredible, um, but you have to be cognizant of the huge dystopic threat that is lurking and, and almost imminent in that regards, you know, and, and I think so long as, so if we can, if we can, so the answer would be if we have the right safeguards in place and we're very mindful and purposeful about creating environments that, you know, set that, that go beyond celebrating humanity, but protect humanity, protect our, 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 um, our ability to operate in a, in a progressive manner, as opposed to that appeal to our, or drive us towards our more base animalistic tendencies, um, then yes. And, and that is challenging because economics can often drive towards the latter. Um, and that's where it really becomes important that we design these systems with not only with a profit principle in mind, but with a particular social agenda. And if we encode that into it, then yes, I think it could be a net positive and should be a net positive. How do we make that happen? We often talk about do well by doing good. And I'm all for people capitalizing on efficiencies in technology that, that can make that happen. How do we make what you just described part of the process embedded in the pursuit Especially when, as you pointed out before, you know, I think it's something like you're seven clicks away from some, you know, from um, from uh, like hate comments in YouTube. How, how do you make it so that we can change the script, enable, you know, keep keep the capitalistic structure structure uh, intact if you if you believe in that, so that this becomes part of the process, not not the 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 side note. Um. I, so without kind of getting into the capitalism and of itself, I, I think capitalism does need reform. And there, you know, I don't think that we can solve this problem without actually addressing some of the structural inequities of capitalism as a system. Now, that's not to say that, you know, I mean, I think we've seen the failures of socialism and communism. So that is not what I'm espousing at all. But, you know, unfettered, you know, growth based on profit and greed, if you will, is clearly not healthy and it's clearly destructive. So that can't be off the table. So it has to be part of the narrative and part of the discussion. But that is a big subject and it has its own place and space for that discussion. But that aside, I think um, so when you look at the, 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 the construct, it is complex, right? There are many multiple factors um, that need to be addressed. Even if you look at that social tech stack, um, you know, you need policy, you need standards, you need economic incentives. Um, but I think there are some core principles that you can start from. And for me, you know, this really comes down to sovereignty. 
you know, sovereignty and individual, you know, giving the individual some basic rights, you know, and when I think about digital, because the reality is that we are transitioning from an industrial era to a digital era. And the digital era, you know, I think McKinsey did a report back in 2017 or so that more revenue is now generated by moving data around the world than there is from moving physical goods. So the engine of the economy is very much bits and bytes um, now and, um, and electrons, if you will. So we have to recognize that. So in that context, we need to then look at our roles as citizens um, inter interacting with, that, with the economy. And so you, I think we have to start from a basic point of some basic rights. And for me, those ultimately come down to three real core principles privacy, agency, and property. And I think, you know, privacy is kind of straightforward in terms of what it means, but very complex in terms of how you go about it. Property really is, again, that's the, really the foundation of law, you know, property rights and the Magna Carta, and this is really how law comes into being. But I think we need to extend that to data, to information. So if we can have property rights around our information as citizens, as individuals, um, that's key. And why that's really important is because without that, without those two things, we have no real agency. And, you know, there's a big scientific debate as to whether, whether free will is, is real or exists. But certainly if we're going to continue to believe in this principle of a democratic society, that is based on the principle that we're able to make free choices and free decisions uh, and, and, and um, free endorsements of particular candidates or characters or principles. So you need to have privacy and property around our information in order to have agency and freedom to have free choices. So for me, those are the foundations. And if you can build around those principles and you can make those principles centered to everything that follows around them, then we can then start to build out the services and the layers and the, and the laws and the standards and the operating models that bring those principles to life. So I may be oversimplifying here, but I want to give a, a practical example. I, when I talk to friends and they say, um, I, you know, I was searching for something and, and, and I was looking for some shoes and I saw the ad follow, you know, then it, then shoes popped up 12, you know, the next day and the next day and now it's on my phone. Um, my response is often, you know, especially if it's Gmail based, I use Gmail as, as my email client. It's a free service, as most people know. And part of what I'm trading there is my data. So I'm aware that I'm letting them into my inbox so that they can serve me ads that that's how they monetize the service or I could pay for something else that would remove those ads. But I'm, I'm often a little bit surprised by how many people don't seem to understand that trade. And I think you're getting towards this. Uh, I'm comfortable with that trade. I'm comfortable knowing that I'm getting this free service in exchange for their ability to target me with things. And in fact, I enjoy it because I often find that they target me with products and services I wasn't aware of and I'm discovering new things. But I think other people feel very differently about that. And I, it seems like if I understand MetaMe correctly, you're looking to take ownership or give people clear ownership of, of partly that exchange. But it's, you know, as you think about healthcare and, and telehealth and all the privacy issues that come up, I mean, I'm, again, trying to oversimplify with the Gmail example, like what do you think the right trade is? And is it about just awareness that people recognize, okay, I can, pay for something else or I can use Gmail for free, but this is the trade and that too many people aren't aware. Like I'm trying to understand what you think the best future state is 
so that ownership of data is clear. And in some cases we can trade it for a service. In some cases we, we own it and don't let someone else take advantage of it. So, yeah, I mean, look, I think you hit the nail on the head and this is a very, you know, recurrent theme and recurrent point. Um, there, there are two, two challenges, I think, in the, that model in terms of the Gmail's free, I, I get Gmail for free and therefore they can use my data and use it to customize service to me. The first is like the advertising led model. So that's always going to, and I'm not saying that there isn't a role for advertising. There is an absolute role for advertising. But if the whole system is based solely on an advertising model, then it's always going to be biased towards advertisers. And it means that there's a conflict of interest between Google's ability to make a recommendation to you and its ability to generate money. Now, I don't believe that advertising is the only way to generate money from our data or from our you know, experiences on the web. It's just the easiest. So everyone's sort of defaulted towards that. And it kind of becomes a bit of a crappy service because it's all led by these generalizations around advertising. Um, so that I think is only a part of the story in terms of the potential value exchange around data. Um, and, and the second part of it is that the, you're right, there is a trade that is happening, but the problem is that the terms of that trade are, 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 Un, well, are monopolistic on one hand, and un, you know, unre unrealistic. So you, the the principle is that well, if I don't want to use Gmail, then um, I if I don't want to share my data, then I should simply not use Gmail. If I don't want to use Facebook to use my data, I shouldn't use Facebook. But as you know, during recent Senate hearings, we heard many senators saying that the only ways that they can talk to their constituents is through Facebook. And there is no alternative because it's a monopoly in that regards. So it's, un, it's unrealistic to say to people that, well, it's simply I, I can opt not to use that service. So if that becomes the case that you have to use these services to participate in society, in digital society, um, then the question then becomes around, well, okay, in that transaction, who is determining what the value of your information is versus this value of the service that you're getting. And that's the real issue here. So I don't, I do think it is about, I think it's gonna get worse to get better. And part of it getting, part of the solution is actually to make it more transactive. And in that so, sense, to actually clarify the transaction that's happening and get the value exchange correct on each side of it accordingly. I mean, obviously this gets very complicated very quickly. You know, I use a, a relatively relatable example of Gmail, but if your telehealth visit is being listened to and then you're being served potential remedies and drugs based on what AI thinks you may need, like this gets very complicated very quickly. So I want to be clear that I don't think it's all rainbows all the time. But I, I, yeah, it, it seems it, like you bring it, up this point. Well, go ahead, go ahead. It does, I just wanted to touch on that. That's a great example because actually, you know, if you look at clinical trials, as an industry, the average cost of recruiting someone to a clinical trial in the US is $20,000. And wow. the average cost of retaining someone is $7,000. So that's essentially what is going in to the value of your data. If you have a condition, that is actually the value of your data on average, 20 to $27,000. So, cause I was getting at a point like that. If it, it, it just to use the Gmail example, are you suggesting that if Google were more transparent and said to me, 
uh, we're making a penny a month off of you as a client or as a customer versus we're making a million dollars a day off of you, that you, it sounds like you think there's a, there, that margin needs to be more transparent because if someone's able to capitalize dramatically, I mean, I guess my question is more so, does that matter? Or is it just, is it, is it just about like, once I hand over the data, if you could sell it for a million dollars or a nickel, does it make a difference? I mean, there's a lot to the answer and, and it doesn't necessarily involve you handing over the data. But I do think the important principle is the data is yours. The lion's share of the transaction should be yours. So if that data is being paid for by someone, the lion's share of that should come to you. Yeah, now third parties, we as Metami, for example, we provide a service where we enable people's data to be brought by third parties. You get that money and we take a commission for enabling that transaction to happen. But in the world that Google and Facebook have at the moment, that transaction is happening all off platform. You get nothing of it and all you get are these free services in, in, in return. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting discussion. Um, I have a lot more questions, but we're, we're running out of time shortly. What would you tell the entrepreneurs? This could be two questions, but if you can answer it in one, let's give it a shot. But for the entrepreneurs okay. listening, what would you challenge them to do as they build out their products and services? And for the corporate innovators who maybe aren't involved in the coding day to day, but face similar ethical issues, what would you say to them? I think that the answer to both is quite similar, actually. I think ultimately, you know, trust is the currency and, um, you know, privacy is going to become increasingly important in terms of earning consumer trust. And I think as developers and as corporations, we're going to have to really get, take that on board and, and put trust in place in order to grow our businesses and to deliver better services as well. And I mean, more profitable service, more beneficial, richer services accordingly. How, how do we do that? How do we build trust digitally? And, and I got to ask you to keep this answer short, but what's something people can do to build that trust? It's not just a you know, beautiful website can seem very trusting, but be you know, very uh, malevolent behind the scenes. Yeah, I think it's, it starts to come down to data sovereignty, data ownership, and using, there are tools. I mean, if you come to metame.com and follow us, we, we are part of a movement around decentralized technologies that enable people to take ownership of their identity and their data, and just to start to have a bit more control and equitability around that. Awesome. Um, you know, the theme of this week is how do we build a better future for all? I think a lot of your answer is uh, target that question and inspire some of the, the action needed. But specifically, how do you think either you or Metami or this community in general can help drive and build a better future for all? For me, I think the real cornerstone really here is around data sovereignty because it's the new currency. You know, to say people don't care about data, but people care about money. And I think data is as tangible, if not even more tangible than money in this regard. So I think we educating people about that on one hand, giving people the tools to have ownership and control of it on the other hand, but as companies, as innovators to work on this new concept, this new platform, this new paradigm is really the way that we start to build a healthy future for where we can have a much healthier relationship between technology, society, and the planet. Awesome. I really appreciate you being here. By the way, what, what internet browser do you use? Uh, I use Firefox. Ah, okay. I was thinking I use, maybe DuckDuckGo was, was in I your used, future. I use DuckDuckGo as my search engine. So yeah, I, yeah, use, yeah. I use Firefox and DuckDuckGo are my default places. Yeah, interesting. 
Cool. Well, thank you very much for being here. Thanks for listening. Let us know your favorite takeaways on social media at We Are Tech United. Stay tuned. More of Tech United on Tap next.